Hello, and welcome to Verge ESP, a podcast about art and science on The Verge. My name is Emily Yoshida. I am the entertainment editor at The Verge. I'm Liz Lopato. I'm the science editor at The Verge. And it's Olympics week. It's Olympics week. Happy Olympics week. Um, we're going to talk about it a little bit more later, so you can stay tuned for that. But uh, but first, we wanted to, to check in on another another event, another event that brings uh, together people of all different creeds and talents, and you know has them has them competing alongside each other, but ultimately for good. Um, Liz saw Suicide Squad. It's a terrible movie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just gonna be like totally upfront with that. It is a it is a bad movie, and it, I I I don't blame the actors one bit for it because they did the best they could with a script that is completely incoherent. But it is it it is not good. I'm 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 I, I know that there was a lot of consternation about the bad reviews it was getting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, the bad reviews were deserved. Now I haven't really been keeping up with that whole argument, that whole um, movement, if it even justifies being called that much, uh, since the film came out, because I've been away for um, a little, I've been taking a couple of days off. But I, I'm curious to know if you've noticed that that side of the fandom kind of quieting down after they had a chance to actually see it. Like, is it that bad that not even a fan person, fan fan man, fanboy, fan, <laughs> a fan, a fan, fan man, <laughs> a super a superhero fan? Um, I like most of the the, and again, this is a self selecting group or rather a group that I have selected. So I'm, I'm not necessarily keeping a close eye on, on fandom. Um, but most of the folks I've seen or have, were agreed that it was, it was bad, but fun. Okay. Did you find it to be fun though? I'm in places, there are places where it's fun. There are places yeah. where I felt like, like there's, it's got the bones of a good movie in it and they just have been assembled in a way that doesn't resemble a skeleton. If that makes right. any sense. And that just goes back to probably <laughs> a lot of the problems we were talking about last week. Just the the weird double movie that was being made between what the director, David Ayer, wanted and what the studio wanted. I don't know. It's too bad. Uh, Harley Quinn deserves better. She really does. I mean, like, one of the things that's particularly weird is that um, it feels like a lot of her agency gets taken away in the movie. Like, there's no real explanation of, like, why she would fall for the Joker. Um, There's not like the whole backstory of her having him as her patient or whatever. Like I remember that from the cartoon. Yeah, she has him as her patient, but it's not, there's no, there's no moment where you see why she might be compelled or interested in the Joker or like what part of him speaks to her. She was a really big uh, My So-Called Life fan. Yeah, maybe that's it. (laughs) She was like, yes, it's Jordan Catalano. (laughs) I think we have to forget about that, right? Like, that's just not, uh, that's not relevant to Jared Leto at all anymore. We well, Jared Leto I, I, is, is some, like a sign that the movie is not going to be a movie I want to see, usually. He's a, right. he's a reliable indicator of that. Yeah, it's sort of too bad. It feels like it feels like he really thought that this was going to be his moment to be. Uh, this was going to be his Jack Sparrow moment, and uh, did not realize that nobody wants that performance uh, at all anymore. Like that performance has probably single-handedly destroyed Johnny Depp's career. But I just I wonder. <laughs> like to me, I, I I couldn't figure out why the Joker wasn't the villain because the villain is Enchantress, who is like otherworldly powerful and. And, like, forced a full city to evacuation. And, like, she's this, like, other dimensional being with incredible uh-huh. power that you can just beat 
with teamwork and a lot of like fist fighting. Sure. And that's that like it didn't it's not compelling. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Whereas like having Harley square off against the Joker gives you an automatic like sense of tension. It gives you stakes. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it gives you something really interesting about that character. She's choosing between, you know, an abusive man she loves and, you know, explosive that gets implanted in her neck and, you know, figuring out who she is and what her agency is. And I think that having the Joker as the villain rather than sort of as this side character yeah, would have been, been a Yeah, that could have been a movie choice. in and of itself. Yeah. You know, well. but, but there were, I mean, Will Smith is great. Margot Robbie is great. Viola Davis just was terrifying. Like, I would watch an entire movie about her character because she is stone cold, man. Man, you know what? I I realize that I've been imagining her. um, I've been reading the Southern Reach books Mm -hmm. very, like, slowly. I read the first one a while ago, and now I'm reading the second one. And I totally imagine Viola Davis in one of the roles in it, The Psychologist. I don't know if you've read it. I haven't, no. Yeah, but, I mean, just similarly, like... Yeah, kind of like this imposing, like, mysterious presence or something. I think she would be good in that. But, but that's my casting note. Then my favorite <laughs> my favorite part of the movie is this exchange. People consistently talk to the white man that she's with as though he's in charge. And there's a point where Will Smith does it too. And then the guy replies and then he says, no, no, you don't understand. I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to your boss. And then he looks at Viola Davis and is like, hey... <laughs> It was such a great beat. It was it was maybe one of the better parts of the movie where you realize like you see the characters really interacting with each other. And one of the things that I think the movie kind of failed to do was show us, you know, what binds these folks together. Like they have a drink in a bar and all of a sudden they're calling each other family. Right. Like that doesn't make sense. So, you know, I I, I just I feel like it just was a total misfire of really interesting material, um, which in some ways are, are more interesting to me than than movies that actually I enjoy. So don't see Suicide Squad or if you do see it, like see it on Netflix. Um, And uh, yeah, if you like bad movies, this is a bad movie. It doesn't it doesn't make a lick of sense. (laughs) The plot holes are things you can drive trucks through. On a more serious note, though, um, it it turns out that uh, there's apparently a hit list uh, targeting climate scientists. So, yeah. So this is this is an ongoing issue, right? Since James Hansen basically blew the whistle on NASA not being able to communicate global warming stuff during the Bush administration. But uh, on a post at the What's Up With That website, Patrick J. Michaels, who belongs to the conservative Cato Institute, left a comment saying there's a hit list, quote unquote, apparently that is targeting climate scientists and Discover Magazine wrote about it. But it seems it's not clear what the list is about. But, you know, it's just it like it's the kind of thing that, that makes me really nervous. Right. You know, because... I don't know, man. Like, scientists get real nervous about politics. They don't want to get involved. And and climate change is inherently now a political issue because one entire party doesn't believe it's real no matter how much data you throw at them. Right. And... It's it's anxiety inducing, I think, for a lot of folks, uh, in particular because there was an effort from ExxonMobil in 2001 to try to oust uh, Robert T. Watson from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And he's, you know, really, really well regarded. And he was the chief scientist of the World Bank. And, you know, there's it just seems like there's a lot of meddling going on. There's a lot of money. And 
I don't know, man. Like, there's there's something there that just really makes me deeply uncomfortable. Like, I, well, I, I, well you know, like, <laughs> I'm, like, sputtering a little because I, I don't think that's a productive way to respond to research you don't like. Right. Well, I mean, we're seeing the same kind of reactions across the board in politics at large. You know, we have a, a, a candidate for a major political party uh, basically dog whistling for somebody to use violence against his opponent, you know. This is becoming normal in our discourse, unfortunately. I do think it's like, it's it's sort of unfortunate because you, I feel like maybe when we were growing up, becoming a scientist felt like something, I mean, I guess it's not apolitical, but it's a way to do something that can make a big impact that, that doesn't involve getting involved in politics. And now you have this one issue, perhaps the issue, not perhaps, like it is the issue. And it's like, you know, it's at the center of this this needless debate and yeah. it, it probably puts a lot of people who did not see themselves being in such a position in a position that's probably uncomfortable or anxiety inducing for them well i mean there is a general skepticism i've noticed that science describes the world accurately which is a really weird thing when you consider how much we've done with science right like you have jill stein dog whistling to anti-vaxxers and talking about how wi-fi hurts children both of which are totally like <laughs> That, like those those things fly in the face of um, science, the, the research that's been done. Uh, but it is a way to dog whistle to her base, which appear to be, you know, the left wing anti science people. Like they're out there too. Um, right, of course. And and I guess I find it troubling because you know, like this is one of the most powerful tools. The scientific method is one of the most powerful tools for describing the world around us that we've ever found. Ever. You know, we've done all kinds of things because we have figured out how to accurately describe the world we live in. Um, right. And sometimes I wonder if it's because science can be very abstract, that people don't realize how it connects in very almost mundane ways, or if we've just gotten so used to it that we take bits and pieces of it for granted, or maybe we're just not good at like dealing with beliefs that contradict fact. <laughs> you know, right. I'm, I'm thinking actually a little bit about, you know, we talked about flossing last time and, and uh, I was just um, with my mom hanging out and uh, she was flossing and she was like, well, what do you think about, you know, this AP investigation? And I said, well, you know, you could probably keep flossing if you like flossing, but there's no evidence that it, it does all of the things it says it's supposed to do. But of course, mm. uh, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Um, it may very well be that if we ran the clinical trials that would be required to provide evidence, it would turn out that the dentists were right. We just, at this point, don't know. And I think people struggle. How, how has it taken that long, by the way, for us to figure out whether or not flossing is good for you? That seems like a pretty controlled, like... Uh, uh, determinable thing well, you could do. So this is interesting. Um, part of it is that the studies that have been done have been short term. They don't right. have the kind of duration that would be needed to to show that the claim does what it does. And part of it is that the recommendation for flossing is really old and sort of got grandfathered in. In the way that like aspirin or Tylenol, if they had been developed today, would not be over the counter because their side effects can be very severe. But because they were over the counter for so long, they just kind of got grandfathered in when the FDA changed in the 1950s and 60s. So this is a, I think the initial recommendation was made in like 1908 or something, sometime around then. And so this is one of those things that like people had just been taking for granted as established knowledge without double checking to see 
<laughs> if we had done the work and it turned out we hadn't. So I think, I think that's like kind of the culprit there. We had, we had just not been keeping an eye on what was behind that recommendation. Gotcha. So let the, the hit list then, it's not really clear what the hit list is for. It's just a list of names that's been, been compiled by a, a right wing think tank. Yeah. And there's, I mean, you know, it's, it's one of those things where because there has been political action taken against climate scientists, everybody gets really nervous whenever somebody uses words like hit list, because it seems like then there's a coordinated effort to try to stop scientists from doing their jobs because somebody doesn't like the results they're getting. And that really strikes me as dangerous. Right, of course. And not just well, for climate science scientists and not just, you know, because of climate change, but for all scientists, you know, like imagine, imagine you do some study or a series of studies. Imagine you're in a field that for some reason becomes unpopular with a major industry. What happens? You know, it's scary. It's a little scary. And I think that's the reason a lot of uh, scientists are feeling very unnerved about it. The thing about science, though, is that, like, I think people maybe have this idea that scientists are not as human as the rest of us in some ways, you know? Um, They don't have the same kinds of, like, rivalries and tensions that we do. Well, they're way too rational for that, right? (laughs) (laughs) And the dirty, dark secret is that, you know, all scientists are human and and they're ugly in the same ways everybody is ugly and beautiful in the same ways that everybody else is beautiful. So the reason that I am saying this is because we published a piece on our site on Tuesday morning uh, about a scandal at the Smithsonian Institution's National Museum of Natural History, which I would highly encourage you if you have uh, some free time to read. It's pretty long, so you you would need to sit with it for a bit. But the short version is there was this uh, scientist, his name is Chris Helgen. Um, He's one of the most widely known mammalian biologists in the world. Um, A couple years ago, you might remember uh, this very cute thing called an Olinguito. Oh yes, Uh Uh new species. That's his. Cute little bear lemur thing, (laughs) ferret type thing. It's uh, it's related to a raccoon, but it really does look kind of like a, a cross between like a monkey and like a, a teddy bear. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> it's very cute. But so you know, um, he's he's someone that I think has produced work that that people know, and he's kind of been a superstar, and he's pretty young, and he stands accused of having basically done misconduct while he was on a. Uh, an expedition in Kenya. Uh, And the three charges are that he copied the signature of uh, the National Museum of Natural History's Associate Director for Science onto a document uh, that allowed the transfer of specimens, that he attempted to ship specimens, and these would have been like blood samples and tissue samples uh, to the U.S., and tried to get his staff to do the same without the proper permits, and that he instructed his staff to hide the specimens, uh, which had been stored in liquid nitrogen from an inspector. So he he was already investigated once and found the the office of the inspector general didn't find wrongdoing. But okay. uh, for, for some reason, they opened a second investigation, and now he is in danger of losing his job. The investigation didn't speak to several of the people who were on the expedition with him. Uh, At least that's what they they told my reporter. And it looks like it's being conducted by someone with whom he has some political rivalry at his job. Right. And one of the people who is accusing him is publishing a rival book 
about the expedition. So we should just be clear that all these are are, are protocol violations if they are real. They're not they're not interpersonal. They're not they're not improper conduct with other as uh, any of his colleagues like, you know, we've talked about before in the scientific community, which is like a whole problem of its own. This is purely just maybe some unsafe or improper ways of handling samples and 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 shipping them back. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, there essentially it's like some countries have put into place rules to protect themselves from, you know, the kind of theft of resources that went on in the colonial era. Sure. And it looks like those rules are are being used against uh, Helgen. So so what was his reasoning, though, for this? Like, is there what's his argument or is it just a completely baseless accusation? Well, so it it looks like it might have stemmed from a misunderstanding. (laughs) Um, And again, we've spoken to his supporters. Um, We haven't spoken to the accusers. They declined comment. But they, first of all, the the wild dog samples at issue didn't belong to Helgen, uh, and they weren't collected during the expedition. Um, They belonged to somebody else and were gathered earlier by Kenyan uh, researchers with the proper permits and donated. And there had been an arrangement to borrow the samples so that uh, one of the researchers on the expedition could work with them in California. And then according to her, when it was time to leave Kenya, the the cooler that they were in malfunctioned. And so they put them in liquid nitrogen instead um, and asked Helgen to ship them with the rest of the materials that had been gathered on his expedition. So that's that's like sort of a convoluted way of saying that, you know, this is a wildly boring accusation. Yes, it's a wildly boring accusation. But like the thing is, like the thing that that's 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 frustrating and surprising to me, and this is of a piece with the other misconduct scandals that we've covered, is that the, the investigation appears to have been totally botched. And I think right. that there are a lot of institutions that are either incapable or unwilling to perform decent investigations of wrongdoing, which means, of course, that you have people who, you know, do things like sexual harassment and get away with it. And people who can be accused of things that they didn't do and get nailed for it. And I don't know why that is. I don't. I, I mean, I kind yeah. of do. I mean, I you talk a... about the scientific method <laughs> and it being our most important tool. I mean, the scientific method should be able to help people out in these situations, I would think. Well, I, I think part of it stems from the fact that they, they tend to be internal investigations. And so the people who are conducting them maybe are not very good at doing investigations to begin with because that's not actually the main part of their job and the main focus for what they do. So that's part of it. But the other piece of it, and this is just a suspicion on my part and and an opinion, I want to be very clear about that, is that I think a lot of institutions, when they do investigations, do them primarily to protect the institution rather than to determine what the truth is. And that necessarily leads to bad investigations. Right. You know, um, if the point of the investigation is to protect the institution and not to protect the accuser or not to protect the accused, you you just wind up with miscarriages of justice. Like there's this um, Renata Adler piece that she wrote about Whitewater that I was thinking of the whole time that I was editing, uh, which was that, you know, the most important part of the Whitewater investigation was that it be seen be seen as being, you know, totally apolitical um, and and. That meant that, you know, they were more concerned with looking proper than actually investigating. Um, and I think that, that that hamstrings a lot of investigations, not just the Whitewater investigation. Or not Whitewater. What am I thinking? It was the Nixon investigation. Watergate. Yeah, Watergate. Um, and so uh, that's one of those things where 
I feel like there are so many people who with with interests there that it's almost always in your best interest to bring in an outside party and leave the outside party alone and make sure that the outside party is very good at doing investigations and let the chips fall where they may. So let's talk about the actual implications of if this guy loses his position and what that means and what that means for how this how these institutions are or aren't serving science at large well you know doing research in in places like kenya can be really difficult for scientists who are not from kenya it, you know uh sometimes institutions will leave young scientists kind of in the lurch um, or look the other way when there's a problem there isn't a ton of support for dealing with some of the institutions that are that are local to the areas where these these things happen and it, it seems like you know this is a very crucial time for documenting species and and what we've got because climate change means that that's going to change and if we want to know how things are changing we need to know sort of some sort of baseline data but because of all of these challenges and all of these risks it seems like fewer and fewer researchers are willing to do it Mm -hmm. So that to me is kind of an important bottom line, right? You're scaring people away from doing research who we desperately need, especially if we're interested in preserving um, animals like the African wild dog, uh, which is very, very endangered. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And part of it, too, is that Halkin's pretty young. He's in his 30s. He's about our age. And he rose very, very fast. And, you know, it's one of those things where I'm sure you've you've read those articles about those damn millennials and how they don't know their place and whatever. Yeah, Um, I've heard of that word. (laughs) It can be very treacherous if you are a young scientist who is um, more accomplished than your, your seniors who are much older than you. And it, it can be it can be very difficult politically to, to do your work when you have attitudes that are set against you, you know, because you're young or because you know how to um, work with the media and get people excited about your work. That That is another thing that I think can really trip up young researchers and, and end careers, and that scares me. Just being good at their job in a way that their elders don't understand. Or don't like. Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they might understand Selling it and out. not like it. Yeah. Are they mad? Because they're selling out because he found a cute animal and he it got big on the internet. Yeah, classic scientific sellout. <laughs> and so you know, it's it's one of those things where you know, if you have an older researcher who is your boss who is very skeptical about up and coming scientists who are willing to be media friendly or have Twitter accounts or interact with the public, that can really hamstring you because one of the things that you that I think scientists should do more of, and this is just my personal feeling, is is talk to normal people because um, a lot right. of their funding comes from us from our taxes. Right. And if you want to have more research funding, you have to show people what you're doing with it and why it matters and, and why it counts and make yourself accessible in a way that scientific papers are not. And and having that kind of public support for science means doing outreach. And so if you have people who are against that kind of outreach, it's just a way of hamstringing young researchers because it's really hard to get money as a young researcher. It's very, very difficult. And these scientific grants are only getting more competitive. And so, you know, um, it, it just feels like it feels like it's something that can be very dangerous for people who are young in that field. And in some ways, you wonder if the older scientists are in some ways cannibalizing the younger ones in order to extend their own careers. I mean, that was that was what I found myself wondering. Um, but is the scientist especially is science, especially biology and, and where um, and where he was working is this 
are they finding that fewer people are going into it? Because I would think the opposite would be true. I would think that like STEM stuff is growing. It's not that fewer people are going into it. There are a lot more people in PhD programs and getting PhDs. But the problem is that it's very difficult to sort of jump from your PhD to your first job and to get funding for your projects, particularly if you're working on something that is not well established. Usually funding committees like things where there's a bunch of background research. And if you're doing something exciting and new, there's no, there's not as much background research and no guarantee that you're going to find anything worthwhile. And so it's hard to get funded. And if it's hard to get funded, it's hard to do your job. And there's like a, one of the things that I've seen both among my friends, uh, some of whom are biologists who no longer work in biology because there were no places for them. But, but also among science at large is you have these well, well qualified, like well qualified, talented people who have done a bunch of work for whom there, there are no jobs, there is no funding. And the only thing to do is to stay in academia, basically. Well, not even Mm -hmm. that. There's nowhere, there's, there's a really limited number of places in academia that you can go, you know, because of tenure. Um, Right. And so you you, you hear about like these people who are searching for like postdocs and and positions and like they're on the academic job market for two or three years before they find something. And then it's like, you know, not even a faculty position. And so you're getting paid $2,000 to, (laughs) to be an adjunct. Yeah. And so a lot of people drop out of science. A lot of, a lot of people who are in science are dropping out. And I think that's really troubling for the future of a lot of fields. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's sort of a, it's sort of an inverse of what's I think happening in culture criticism, there was an article that's been passed around. It's actually from about a month ago, but it was in the Chronicle of Higher Education about it was it was written by two academics, I think, doing TV studies or media media criticism. Oh, and uh, I saw you, that. T- have you seen this? OK, yeah, it's and, and it's sort of I think that there are some valid points in it. But and overall, I think the impression that I get from it is that there is sure there's a, a wealth of work and a wealth of thought going into this field. But it's all inaccessible. Yeah. And in that in that way, it is less valuable because if you're talking about how to how to read and how to comprehend and how to uh, be a critical thinker about reality television or advertising or something and you're hiding it behind an academic paywall or you're just like not publishing it, you're not being a public person and not serving the people who this stuff affects most then yeah i mean <laughs> that article course, pissed me off it pissed me yeah. off so much i thought it was so stupid it was a, like whining about like why didn't you cite my monograph and i right. would have like bought their argument a little bit more if they had bothered to cite any examples which they didn't right no i know that's that's the incredible thing about it i mean i do think that there is something to be learned i i think that there's been a lot of snarking on this article that I think like I have personally snarked on this article (laughs) well like dismissing it completely out of hand which I think I think that there are some things to be taken away from it I think the idea of citing and doing your homework when you sit down to write about something is something that especially younger writers should learn to do and a lot of editors don't make them do yeah I think I think that's a huge thing but overall like I can understand why people would be especially people of a certain generation are more attracted to writing for BuzzFeed as and as opposed to staying in academia like people read your words and that's that feels like you're actually writing for like I cannot imagine mustering the energy to write you know 5,000, 10,000 words 
and have nobody see it except my peers who are also academics, well, you know? the thing is, in a lot of places in academia, you get penalized for writing in an accessible way. You literally right. are taught yeah. not to write well. That is like Please what you were taught to do. Please don't make this fun. Yeah. And then, and then they're all puzzled that nobody's reading their work. And it's like, why would I? Like, why? Mm-hmm. This is so clearly not for me. You have written this in a completely inaccessible way that is not yeah. interesting. And I read for fun. Okay. Yeah. Like I like to learn things, but like primarily what I what I do is I read for fun. And and um, if the information is truly important, you do need it to be ex- like accessible, like yeah, readable and like accessible, like physically accessible you and also just readable. It. Yeah. I mean, like yeah. how many people, how many freelancers do you know that have access to I don't know JSTOR? <laughs> right. No. And so it was just like the whole thing was like, it, and like the thing that really made me angry about it, like the angriest was they were treating journalists as though we should be their PR people. And that is not the function of journalism whatsoever. I'm sorry, academics. <laughs> That's not what we do. You know, I, I understand how you might get that impression based on the work of, of some folks, but that's that's literally not what, we're, what we do and what we're about. It's not my job to read your monograph and translate it into English. Um, and honestly, I mean, it made me feel like, and I would never think this otherwise, but it made me think of, you know, the modern think piece writer as being considerably braver than the average academic oh, yeah. because they have to put themselves out there in a, in a, in a, at a much higher scale. And even if they go out and their ideas are trash, they're still putting themselves out there. Well, and they're writing sentences in a way that they can be held accountable for. Like, that's the main problem of academic writing is that these sentences are cowardly. And so Mm -hmm. if you read a sentence and you don't like it, the author can come back to you and say, oh, you didn't understand the sentence. Oh, I couched it in all this. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and it's just it's like a total act of like abdication of, Mm -hmm. of, you know, owning your work. And like that in and of itself is cowardly. So like to come out and be like, I don't understand why nobody's citing us. It's mm-hmm. just like, girl, you know why we're not citing you. <laughs> you so, know, uh, you know why. If any academics, uh, academics, academics want to want to come on and, and, and rebut please feel welcome to we we welcome a discourse yeah um, we, i mean I, in common I, parlance please I, I would be happy to to have a conversation because the thing is like i talk to academics all the time for my work right like yeah, I, yeah. I am literally on the phone with academic scientists multiple times a day or week i'm, I'm going out with some tomorrow to to, to hunt ba- baby lizards i know stop bragging liz <laughs> we all know you get to spend a day with baby lizards i'm so it's, excited it's cool. we're gonna go hiking <laughs> we're gonna go look at the the baby lizards and the pitfall traps and then we're gonna let them go it's gonna be great oh, Oh my God. Um, but you know, when you talk to when you talk to scientists, particularly when you're a layperson, they are very good at translating for you, thinking of metaphors to explain what they're doing. And and you know, I, I often tell them to talk to me as though I'm a bright sixth grader. Like I don't really understand like the, the deep mechanics of their field, but if you can explain things to me um, using words I know, I can generally figure out what's going on. Yeah. Um, and and it's usually what, the idea is not that complex. It's there's there's a gate of language around it. Yeah. But, and yeah. like the thing is. It's one of the reasons I really prefer to get people on the phone. I don't like doing email interviews because then they write in this academies and it's like, not only is it unquotable, it's hard to read and it's hard to understand. Whereas if I have somebody on the phone, they say something I don't understand. I say, I'm sorry, I didn't understand you. I think you said this, but I'm not sure. Can you, can you tell me what you meant? Yeah. And talking, writing the way you talk is something that I'm a big proponent of as an editor. And it's something that I think would make academic science and academic media criticism a lot more interesting and viable to the public at large. 
Yeah. No, I mean, I, I mean, it's, it goes back to the Helgen thing too. It's just like opening up what you're doing and letting the world in will only make it better because, in, in a way. Yeah, yeah. because people want to know about this stuff. When you write about science in an accessible way, people read it. When you write yeah. about media in an accessible way, people read it. You know. Yeah. Th- these are these are not things that people aren't interested in. It's just that they don't know what you're saying. Yeah. And they can't reach it. <laughs> <laughs> There's a paywall and you don't have like $600 or whatever to subscribe to that journal for a year. Well, um, after this next break, I'm, I'm going to talk in, in very small words about a certain TV show, a certain piece of media that I think is garbage. So. <laughs> So that just now was some of the score from Stranger Things, which is a show on Netflix, came out a couple weeks ago. The band that scores the show is called Survive. They are um, an Austin band that the show's creators, the Duffer Brothers, had uh, score the show. So it's it's that kind of gives you a feel, if you haven't seen the show yet, of what we're talking about. It's a very kind of nostalgic, synthy, uh, you know, kind of actually honestly honestly very similar to the drive soundtrack, but that's still that that kind of um, retro 80s thriller music. I want to talk about stranger things and I'm starting with the music because, uh, the music is my favorite part of it. And I, it's just good to start somewhere positive. That was a um, really, really backhanded compliment. <laughs> <laughs> Love the music. Love Stranger the music. Things. <laughs> I mean, anytime, you know, every time that it comes to the, the opening credits on, on each episode, I soften. Like, I go into each episode now at this point with my guard up, you know, just kind of waiting for the next thing that's going to irritate me about the show. And then you get to the credits and I'm like, oh, but this is great. I love I love this music. So, <laughs> like, it, it, it is just inherently exciting. Like, I think that there is something about it. And I don't even know if, if for me it's a nostalgic thing because... I didn't really grow up watching a lot of the films that that Stranger Things is sort of riffing on and, and referencing. But anyway, I just fi- I find that to be great. So um, I haven't seen Stranger Things, and I have seen people talking about it. Uh, maybe you yes. could you could give me a sense of 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 what the show is. Yes. Yeah, so Stranger Things is just an eight episode series on Netflix. I'm not really sure if there are plans. I haven't finished it. I'll say that. I'm not sure that there are plans for it to continue this story. Actually, I think there are. I think that it's going to be continuing the story. So it's not a anthology series like, um, or is anthology the right the right word? Or like a mini series type series like American Horror Story or something like that. It's an ongoing story. Uh, it takes place in small town in Indiana where some strange occurrences start happening, kids start disappearing. There's a secretive laboratory in the town where a little girl is run away from and she's got mysterious powers. She can move objects with her mind. And there's a, a weird netherverse where, you know, we're not really sure how to get there, what the portal is to it. It's a mishmash of basically every kid 
family-oriented thriller and and some not-so-family-oriented thrillers from the early 80s. A lot of Carpenter in there, a lot of Spielberg movies. Definitely has a little bit of a uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind vibe to it. My main problem with this film and it are with the series, and it has nothing to do with what it references because I don't really have a, a strong opinion either way around that about that era and type of filmmaking. I can take it or leave it. Is that there's nothing new there. It is just a pastiche of all of these styles and all of these sort of things. There's there's it's like a salad of of references basically with no base underneath it. For me, no real point to existing. It's like a Facebook algorithm compiled all of these like movies from the 1980s and put them yeah. in you know and we're like like is this is that is that a fair way of describing it like basically you yeah. like these things so you'll like this too and there's just yeah. like it's hollow underneath yeah and if you were born in a certain year like you this will just trigger this this uh, this nostalgia that you won't be able to suppress you'll just immediately fall in love with it and it to a large to a large extent it's worked a lot of people really love the show it's really taken off in a huge way i'm sure you know again we don't know what netflix's numbers are they're very cagey about these things but i would assume that it's one of their bigger releases it stars winona ryder which was another reason to be excited about it and it stars winona ryder in a role that is at least promising. She spends a lot of the first few episodes just um, screaming and crying about her son. She's a mom. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but that kind of goes to, I think, the other complaint that has been cited by multiple people is that the show is just kind of idiotic about women. The The, the female characters on it are either in part of a love triangle where their main, their main point for being there is who they're going to end up with romantically or they're a mom who's worried about their little child or little boy it feels very amateurish and I, that, I guess that's why I'm surprised that so many people have fallen for it, it it's something that I see a lot and I definitely saw <laughs> in film school is that there are a lot of kids who go into film school and they don't really have a point of view other than I like movies and that's sort of what this feels like <laughs> I don't I, I just it's one of those things it's, it's almost it's almost unexplainable but when you're watching something and you just feel like there's nothing behind the eyes of the characters there's no and and these aren't even bad actors I think that a lot of the child actors especially on it are are pretty good but I just don't know why they're there I don't know why they want the things they want I have no sense of purpose to the whole story and it's really kind of incredible to me that how this show is taken off. And I think I'm like the only person who's watched it at The Verge who doesn't love it. You're the only person that I know of. Because I've seen it I've seen it in my Twitter feed. Like, I've, I've seen people raving about it. You're the only person I know of who hasn't enjoyed it. <laughs> I don't know what's wrong with I don't mean to make you, know, you sound like more, more isolated or anything like that. Um, I know lots of people who don't like it that are, are friends of mine. I, and after I, st- I have to stop being such a hater online about it uh, after a certain point because it just doesn't it doesn't help anything no but, but uh I, I was then i just moved the discussion to to my text messages and just started texting my friends who also did <laughs> that's um, funny no i mean it's one of those things that i i encounter a lot when i try to watch television which is not all that often anymore um where it doesn't feel like the characters it feels like people are interested in these visual mediums but not very interested in storytelling and the motivation and conflict and the things that 
for me, really make something very gripping. Right. Yeah. I mean, I one of the things I, I did in my weekend-long rosé-fueled tweet storm about Stranger, Stranger Things is just that if you're going to do this sort of rehash and kind of go back to the well on these styles and these sort of references, you have to do something new. And that can be a story that we've never seen before that's like, you know, that's, that's markedly different. And I don't mean stories in like, oh, a different kind of mutant creature crawls out of some goo. I mean, like the dynamic between the characters has to be something that we've never seen before or you have to cast it differently you know a lot of those a lot of those uh, films featured uh, little little young white boys and maybe we could do suburban ones I would say yeah suburban white boys on bicycles and you know we could mix it up and and watch some different kinds of kids living in a different kind of neighborhood you know and I've seen so many and the thing is I've seen so many things like that that are so much more exciting to watch there's a film that was at Sundance earlier this year I don't know uh, if or when it's getting a a general release, but it was called Slight. And in many ways, it was sort of similar to, like, it it plays off of the same sort of popcorn-y appeal. Uh, It's a a kid who's sort of down on his luck. He lives in South LA, and, and he's a magician, an aspiring magician, and he, you know, kind of builds this contraption so that he can save his sister from some criminals. So it's a very kind of, you know, a lot of kids riding around on bikes or in cars, you know, and, and having a having a small scale adventure, adventure that doesn't involve the end of the world, but still feels, you know, exciting and, and like there could be real consequences in it. Well, that um, was, I mean, that was one of the things that was really fun about Attack the Block, right? Like, oh, yeah, totally. Attack the Block is like the perfect example of that. I watched that semi-recently, too. It holds up really, really well. It's so good. It's such a good movie. And it's, it's, mm-hmm. a, it's, a, it's a story that, you know, a, a, the vague outline of which we've seen before, Alien Invasion. But it's told from a perspective yeah. we haven't seen before, which is yeah. you know, housing projects in, in England. Yeah, no, I, I love that film. And I, I feel like there's even a way, like outside of these particular, you know, this generation of filmmakers who's... Was, is very indebted in many ways to that that like those are the films they came came up on even outside of that I feel like I've seen lots of things that I would call a pastiche I would call like a mishmash of things a love letter to X like Tarantino's um, entire career right yeah I mean but I was th- I was thinking about Tarantino too because I was thinking about I was thinking about where I kind of fell off with him where I stopped kind of really believing in him and I was thinking about Kill Bill which I'm just like yeah that those movies were that Kill Bill one and two, like those movies are all over the place and just full of nerdy references. But I do feel emotionally moved when I watch that movie because I feel like the protagonist is a real character and is like, or at least is like communicating a very real and base struggle mm-hmm. that that communicates on screen. I, I and I know that I'm, I, I some people don't think that about that film. But one one show that I think actually is a, a really good counterpoint to Stranger Things and it exists sort of in the creepy kooky territory too is the recently canceled Penny Dreadful, which I think we maybe talked about briefly on here, but I've kind of been I haven't finished watching that one either. Um I'm like near the end of the second season, but it's sort of the same thing. It's like a bunch of different horror stories coexisting in this one time and place in Victorian England. So, you know, the gang's all here. We've got, you know, Dracula and we've got uh, Frankenstein and stuff. And it's very, in many ways, it's very silly and over the top, but the characters all feel real. It feels like it has something to say and it has something to say that can be communicated specifically through its setting. 
and through these people living in this time. And I don't know. I just feel like I feel like we've seen people do this so much better. Even even um, Midnight Special. Did you see that? I didn't know. I mean, that's that's like the closest comparison that that was um, Jeff Nichols film from earlier this year, which I liked. I didn't love, but I still felt was like told. And you know, he's a very kind of lyrical filmmaker and very, very, you know, loves stories about little boys on adventures and like finding weird things in the forest and stuff like that's that's his sweet spot. And this is this is very similar. It's about a young kid who has some mysterious ailment that gives him tremendous power, but also makes him kind of weak and a target of multiple agencies and blah, blah, blah. But it's a Jeff Nichols film. So it's it's very quiet and it's very it's much more impressionistic than, you know, E.T. or something or, you know, a Spielberg film would be. And so that makes it feel different. That makes it feel like it has a a different sort of soul and inside. Can I ask you something that might be hopelessly naive? (laughs) Yes. To what degree does the lack of point of view have to do with commercial viability and what people are willing to fund? Because I feel like um, a lot of the stuff that I like comes from a very specific point of view, one that I don't necessarily need to share or agree with, but like has a certain weirdness or off-kilterness to it. And so you kind of get a sense of like who this the the people involved in 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 building the idea or the universe are like you know like i'm I'm thinking i've i've watched a lot of joss whedon shows for instance and like you know joss whedon has his his own like weaknesses and strengths but for better or worse you always know when you're watching a joss whedon show you just always do right it's just there there's there's a very specific point of view that's being communicated um, and so I, I, I guess what I wonder is, you know, does this have in some way to do with access to funding? I, you know, I'm not really sure. I do feel like this this is a Netflix show, we should repeat. And I feel like Netflix has been giving its creators a pretty long leash as far as how they decide to make their films or their um, series. These These guys in particular, they had one feature film that came out last year. I don't I, I haven't heard of it. Um, it's sort of a similar situation, I think, to to Mr. Robot, where um, the uh, creator, Sam Esmail, had had one kind of festival indie film a couple of years before and then got this got greenlit for this series on USA. I don't I cannot confirm how much being a guy has to do with this. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but I don't I wouldn't say that Netflix is like micromanaging its shows and I don't think Stranger Things is being micromanaged. I think I think that this is kind of a this feels like an internally created micromanaging where it's like there are certain filmmakers, especially certain like recent film school grads who like re- like I say, like they really just like movies. Like that's their thing. And I don't I don't know that there's anything else that like I don't, I don't feel like I don't feel like it was stifled from being more interesting than the creators wanted it to be. But that's me just like, well, I, I guess the question nothing. has to do with who you pick to be the creators in the first place and not necessarily, you know, like, did the studio demand recuts? Right. Like, right. Yeah. You know, having a point of view, as we were talking about earlier, means sticking your neck out and taking some risks. If you have a point of view, there are going to be people who don't like it. And you can certainly look at the comments on my articles <laughs> and see that. Right. And so I wonder, you know, I sometimes wonder if sometimes the people who get greenlit are, are people who, you know, it's already known that they're going to play it safe so you don't even have to intervene. Yeah. I mean, I just don't, I don't think there's a hard and fast rule to it. I think that there are a lot of filmmakers who probably should, just should have done music videos and ads and ha- would have done really, really good 
work in those fields and aren't necessarily storytellers, but storyteller is probably the most overused word of the last five years. And I think that we ascribe that title to a lot of people who are more like visualists or designers or, you know, just overall producers of a package. Like a storyteller is a specific thing. and, and, And some people really have that urge and some people don't as much. So and some people, you know, find that urge so that they can do a thing and get, you know, so they can have a show or they can make a movie or something. So I don't know. I I don't want to say there's one specific problem that that led to this show. But anyway, a lot of people seem to like it. So I hope they enjoy themselves. (laughs) (laughs) At least the theme's good. Well, in between me uh, finishing up Stranger Things and the third season of BoJack Horseman, I've been getting back into the Olympics. Tell me more. I I mean, I say back into it because I, I wasn't watching the first few days as I was traveling. But I watched some swimming last night, and it was very exciting. I don't know. I'm I'm I enjoy the Olympics a lot. Apparently, I enjoy them because I'm a woman. But uh, <laughs> well, that's what that's what NBC seems to think. And it's like that was their excuse for the tape delays. That oh, girls don't care about who win. They they are interested in the stories. And like, don't get me wrong, I like my stories, but I also like knowing who wins. So like, I'm surprised they're doing tape delays because like with Rhea, uh, with the the World Cup a couple years ago, all of that could be live because it was you know the same time zone more or less as the United States why are the, why are they doing the time delays just to get the 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 blockbuster programming in the right time slot for NBC I assume what? I don't really understand it at all because what's happening is like again you know I'm, I'll be hanging out on Twitter and so there are people who are watching it live and are getting very excited about it and then there are people who are getting frustrated because the people who are watching it live are essentially spoiling the results and like the, the New York Times and other places are reporting on who's winning and like meanwhile you know NBC is not airing real time so you have to wait, yeah. you know, like five hours to see something you already know the, the results for. Yeah. And, you know, there are certain things I'm thinking specifically of gymnastics where the athleticism and power of the performances is so incredible that it, it, it's going to carry them. It'll carry itself anyway. Yeah, yeah. Because you're not watching, I mean, you are watching gymnastics to see who wins, but also like the things that they're doing with their bodies are so crazy that it's just like, <laughs> yeah. And especially now in HD, like when you, like the, the slow-mo, I watched yesterday where uh, this girl from China like fell off of the parallel bars and then they could play it back in HD. And it like, it just makes you wonder, oh my God, like what did we do? How did we watch the Olympics before <laughs> we had super slow-mo and 1080 or 4K? Because I mean, just seeing that, just that interaction with that object, that human and interacting with that object in such detail is like, incredible and that like that was the difference between her getting a medal or not yeah it's crazy well i mean they're also the other thing that nbc has done which i think is very stupid um and it might not just be nbc it might be ioc as well is they have said that they they don't want gifs made of performances and like right that is so dumb i don't even know what to do because like there was this great piece that um i think elspeth reeve did um the last summer olympics where she's a former gymnast and so she used Mm -hmm. gifs to explain major gymnastics moves 
Yeah. Um, and it, it really helps. Like it's a, it's yeah. a great way of explaining a sport because you can see what's happening as well as like get the description of like what goes into that. Um, yeah. And you have, I mean, you've just hamstrung a bunch of journalists, basically. You've, you've prevented them from, from doing something that is going to be useful and helpful to, to raise the stakes for, for what is happening on television. Well, beyond that, there was that crazy thing. Didn't the IOC say that you weren't allowed to use the hashtag Rio2016 unless you were working for NBC or there on the ground or some something absurd, like some complete misunderstanding of how Twitter and hashtags work? I mean, um, the IOC is, is a total wreck. I like I don't yeah. mind saying so. No, it, I mean we you can go back to our wonderful Brazil episode. I mean I feel like I feel like the the biggest story so far has been the Russian doping. Yes. And uh we and they I guess the Paralympics arm of the IOC. They just banned, banned. the Russians. Yeah, they them. banned the entire Russian team from there, but this there's the the Russian team is still playing in the regular Olympics and there has been some some on the field chip, chippiness. Let's just call it chippiness uh, between uh, the swimmers, especially recently. There was the the swimmer, the female swimmer who ended up winning. I think the hundred fifty meter. Oh yeah, she totally uh, taunted the Russians as and as yeah. I would have done, frankly. Like if I knew yeah. I were competing against someone who was cheating, I would be very clear about how I was competing against a cheater and beat him anyway. Yeah, but I was so good that you could yeah. cheat and not beat me. <laughs> and I mean, it's it's interesting because it gave the commentators, I guess, a, a way to talk about it. Because as far as I can tell, like nobody's talking about it on TV. Like they're just not acknowledging. But maybe I've missed it. I mean, I would certainly think I would have heard some of it during either gymnastics or swimming, which I was watching yesterday. But I didn't. I didn't hear anything like that. To me, that just feels like a huge elephant in the room if you're not discussing that. And so having the athletes actually address it out during their matches where the cameras can't look away is pretty powerful. Yeah. I mean, like that, again, like you, when you know you're competing against someone where there has been systematic doping, like that's not a fair competition. And like, you know, there are a couple of ways to deal with that. One is to make doping totally legal for the Olympics. And the other is to actually enforce your doping rules. Yeah. Um, But we're in this weird middle ground where neither of those things are happening. And so, yeah, I would trash talk. I would trash talk to like to the gods. I like you would not be able to stop me. Um, well, one one non-doping related trash talking was last night with uh, Laclo, the the South uh, South American swimmer who's just been taunting. Uh, Michael Phelps endlessly, which is like its own little movie, its own little, uh, I don't know. I wish there still, I wish there were still Olympic movies like Cruel Running, uh, Cruel Running. I just mixed up Cruel Intentions and Cool Running. Now that is a pastiche I would watch. <laughs> yes, pastiche. Yeah, no, I wish that there, I wish that there were still movies like that because I would totally watch the movie of this little skirmish between Phelps and this dude. I mean, neither of them I'd be rooting for because they both seem like jerks to be honest but um and Phelps doing his little um Night King come at me pose at the end after he won but um and and also with his tentacle arms with his, <laughs> with his cumping t- tentacle arms um, he's, he's double jointed in so many joints that like he just seems unholy yeah <laughs> Well, no, but he has the he has the cupping things all over. He's got oh, the hickeys. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, hickeys. the cupping hickeys. Well, this is one of the, f- the the things that's always funny to me about athletics because athletes are super superstitious, and so they are very into to fads, right? Like there was um, 
there, there have been a bunch of things. Um, there was like mm-hmm. the kinesio tape and the power bands, and like you know oh, they might power bands. They, they might did, work. Ath- did did Olympic athletes actually wear power bands? No, I think that was mostly co- like confined to like the NBA and like baseball. Oh my. But you know these are these are things where like you know they they they'll do anything to get an edge because you're you're talking it's a game often. of milliseconds. Yeah. So like you know they, they'll do anything and like some you know they might be working through the placebo effect. The placebo effect is really important. If you believe something will make you stronger, sometimes it does. Mm-hmm. And, and But the other thing that I think might be going on is like, um, the idea is that, that, that cupping relieves pain. And the thing about being an athlete at that caliber is that you are in pain pretty much 100% of the time. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, you're doing these incredibly hard workouts and like then sitting in an ice bath to like try to reduce like muscle soreness, which is not fun. And like, you know, getting massages and acupuncture, anything to like cut the pain a little bit so that you can go back and do your very hard workout the next day. And so I think that's 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 where the sort of cupping thing is coming from. And, you know, there's there's extremely limited evidence that cupping works. Yeah, like less than less than acupuncture, which is usually it's related to. Right. Uh, I mean, it's also, you know, another sort of ancient Eastern medical practice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um but like, yeah, I mean, it's 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 just one of those things where you see this crop up every couple of years in athletics. Like there's something that's like unproven, but might potentially give you an edge, you know, either via the placebo effect or just because it int- intimidates your opponents. I don't know. But yeah. any kind of like perceived advantage is, is something that these guys like totally clamor for. And so that's why everybody has these like enormous, you know, I just got attacked by a huge octopus. <laughs> <laughs> Hickeys um, all over their body. <laughs> yeah. I was wondering who, of all Olympic sports, who has the best quality of life and training. And, I mean, I think I think swimmers and gymnasts are probably down there, like, in, in the lower, lower tiers. Just the pain and the, you know, the diet and all of that. Um, I think volleyball players have the best life. That's that's my that's my theory because they get to play. You don't have the weight of your success resting on just your shoulders. That's a team sport, and they all hug every single time they score a point. Oh, they that all, seems nice. Yeah, it's like you know, there's proven, I, I guess, scientific studies that hugs are good for you, like boost your brain activity or something like that. I don't know. I probably read this on the back of a, I don't know. I mean, there is, you know, I mean, it, it seems like not really, I don't know off the top of my head how good that stuff is, but I, I would suggest to you that as we are social animals, anything that, that reinforces social bonds is probably pretty rewarding, <laughs> you know? So I would I would continue to watch the volleyball players just if you want, if you want to feel less sympathetic pain and more sympathetic Ah, teamwork isn't that fun vibes. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I feel like um, probably the the marks the the sharpshooters probably have pretty oh, good yeah. lives. Oh yeah, they're chilling. They they're, don't have to. Yeah, you they know? can eat like a cheeseburger every night. It doesn't matter. Because like with the, <laughs> with the jockeys, like I I, I saw it some hot takes about how jock you know jockeys aren't really athletes, and it's like you have never ridden a horse. You have yeah, no true. idea how much like core strength and thigh strength is required to get a horse to do what you want it to do. Yeah, no you got to have huge thighs to be a jockey. Yeah, um, and like you get thrown off a horse and you break things, you can break your spine. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really quite dangerous. And and you know, I'm I'm inclined to think of those people as athletes uh, in the same way that I am inclined to think of sure. cheerleaders as athletes. Sure, but bring on the dressage. Those are those are those are these are real heroes. Out yeah, there. I mean, uh, like. <laughs> 
you know? Um, well, we'll be uh, probably watching the Olympics for the rest of the next week, and maybe we'll have some more some more fun thoughts and observations. Yeah, keep taunting the pod. Russians. If there are any Olympians listening to this, yeah. like, I'm living for it, please. More finger-wagging, please. <laughs> um, uh, we'll be back next week uh, for more ESP. As always, you can subscribe to us, and we encourage you that you do on iTunes at Verge ESP. You can also find us on Spotify, uh, on your phone, on Spotify Mobile. And we are on SoundCloud, uh, soundcloud.com slash VergeSP. You can also tweet at us. I am at Emily Yoshida, and Liz is at Miss Lapato, MS Lapato. That does it for us. Thanks, guys. Bye.